take your Bibles and turn to the book of Leviticus, the third book of Moses, the third book in our English Bible. I've titled tonight, Leviticus, Approaching the Holy God in Holiness. It's a, it's a very common phenomenon that when people start reading their Bible through, that they typically make it through Genesis because it's just really provocative and curious. They make it through Exodus because they've probably seen the Ten Commandment movie, Cecil B. DeMille's film. And then they get to Leviticus and Numbers and suddenly they say, I'm gonna do this next year. Well, I wanna suggest to you that if you'll slow down and look deeply into what the book of Leviticus is really communicating, saying, how it's outlining who God is and what God expects, that it is approaching the holy God in holiness, it will completely change your attitude toward this book. Someone has said it took God only one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took nearly 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Leviticus is that book of trying to get the, the worldliness of living in Egypt among the pagans, the worldliness of wanting the materialism of Egypt and the, the security of Egypt, to get that out of the heart of the children of Israel. And Leviticus is that book that is a sanctification book. It teaches what it means to be holy because God is holy. The name Leviticus is a very uh, uh, simple name. It's the Latin Leviticus from Levi, the third son of Jacob and Leah. And Levi was the one who was tapped on the shoulder by God not to inherit any land, but instead to have his entire tribe be servants to the Lord as pastors, as priests, as a whole kingdom who would serve the nation so that the temple worship, the tabernacle and then the temple worship would be regulated, would be overseen, would be superintended. And that's who the Levites were. The theme and aim are clearly stated in the book. Now, let me give you a little preview of what we're going to do tonight. It's going to be a little bit opposite of what we typically do on a Sunday morning. We're going to walk into Leviticus like it was a house. We're going to run around different rooms and see different things. And then on the way out, I want to give three simple takeaways that will allow, I think, I hope all of us to take Leviticus away with us just in simplicity and in theme. But the theme if you want to start in Leviticus chapter 11, it's clearly stated. Moses, quoting God, says, Leviticus eleven forty five, for I, and we're going to be flipping around a lot. If you want to try to follow, that's great. If not, just write them down and go back later. Leviticus eleven forty five, for I am the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. There is a world of insight in there. God delivered them not just to fulfill a promise, not just to, to make the Abrahamic covenant come to fruition with a lot of people. Look at what it says there. I brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. There is a personal, relational drawing of God getting the people out of Egypt, not just to the promised land, but to him. Thus, because I did this for you, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now we need to stop for a moment and talk about what holiness is. Holiness has two dimensions. First of all, it's moral superiority 
to be holy, uh, superiority, to be holy like God is to approach him, though we'll never be like him, in moral perfection and moral purity to be, if you were going to explain it to a little fourth grader, good and not bad, righteous, not unrighteous, right, not wrong, sinless, not sinful. But there's another way that God is holy, which means he's holy, W-H-O-L, holy, entirely unlike us. Holiness, when we study the attributes of God, is, um, is a strange thing to study because the, the attributes fall into two categories. Remember, we've talked about this before, communicable and incommunicable. Communicable are those things that God communicates about himself that we can be like. God is merciful. We should be merciful. God is kind. We should be kind. God is love. We should be loving. The goal of our instruction is love, Paul told Timothy. But incommunicable attributes are things that, that are that God is like, that we can never be like. Omniscient, omnipresent. Moms sometimes are close, but anyway, omniscient and omnipresent. These are ways we can never be like God. Interestingly, holiness falls into both. No one, Moses said, no one is holy like the Lord, incommunicable. He is entirely, utterly unlike us. And yet, in his moral perfections, we are to aspire to holiness like he is. Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Do you hear a theme here? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am, I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who, and now we find the verbal form of the word, who sanctifies you which is really a Hebrew and a Greek way of saying, I holyize you. To sanctify someone is to make them set apart morally uh, uh, more superior than their sinful inclinations and to be like God. This principle, as we look at Leviticus, Leviticus, cannot be overstated. God is holy and he calls us to be holy. First Peter 1, we'll see in a few minutes. Peter picks that up and says the same exact foundation. We are to pursue sanctification, holiness, because God is holy, built off this principle in Leviticus. Because God is holy, he demands that we be like him in that. Now, because we've seen the saving grace of God, holiness is a reflex. Holiness is because of what we've seen and known and done in observing that God has delivered us. As we said last week in the book of Exodus, the Exodus experience, getting the, the people out of Egypt into the promised land, that becomes a paradigm. That becomes a pattern throughout the rest of the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, even up to the Passover ceremony to say God is a saving God. And as he saved the nation out of Egypt in bondage into freedom and the new covenant promise of the Abrahamic promise, rather, of inheriting the land. So the Christian also sees God as a fundamentally saving and gracious God who takes us from the domain of darkness and puts us into the beloved, righteous son of his only beloved. He's a saving God. Well, just as God justifies and God saves, we see that paradigm in the book of Exodus. He also sanctifies and that's the paradigm in the book of Leviticus. The last verse in the book tells us 
the precise date and the authorship of the book. It's really interesting. Leviticus 27, 34. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. Remember, they camped there for several months, and while they were there, a lot was happening. We saw last week in Exodus, in our last study in Exodus, that um, while they were camped uh, down below, Moses goes up, gets the, the, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. He comes down from the mountain. He sees the, the celebration to honor the, the golden calf. He throws the tablets, shatters them. Then he goes back up the mountain in Exodus 34 with new tablets. God gives him a new set of, of tablets to, to come back down with the, with the words of his, um, his own writing to give to the people the law, the expectations that he has for the people. And just as he gave them, this is what it means to come near me, Leviticus says, this is what it means to stay near me. If you want New Testament language, Exodus shows us justifying grace, salvation of God, and Leviticus shows us sanctifying grace. Over and over and over, 56 times you might note, 56 times in Leviticus, Moses makes the point that God gave these commandments to Moses. That's important. As Moses is going to, we'll we'll talk about it in a minute, get in their kitchen about so many levels of their life. You should do this, you shouldn't do that, all the way down to the kind of fabric you put on your back, the things you eat, the things you don't eat. The reason for that, the reason Moses tells him to be that way and to think that way and to act that way is because God told him to tell them that. There's a real sense in which the book of Leviticus is the pastoral epistle of the Old Testament. There's a lot in here about giving uh, the priests instructions on how to conduct sacrifices and to take offerings and to uh, conduct uh, tabernacle and temple worship. And as a pastoral epistle, Moses need to let the people know, I'm ordering the worship of Israel, not because it's my good ideas, But 56 times he says, I'm commanding you to do this because the Lord commanded me to do this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. It begins with this very thing. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Stop right there. Now, without getting uh, into a huge um, kind of... Sidebar, remember the tent of meeting was a unique place that God called uh, Moses to meet with him in because uh, if you go before the, the golden calf incident, the pillar of cloud by day, this tornado of cloud by day, and it turned into a tornado of fire by night. They always saw the presence of the God. He led them from the, from the, dead, from the uh, crossing of the Red Sea all the way to Sinai. Well, because of the golden calf, he took that away. And that's one reason they wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. Which way do we go? We kind of go north and we kind of go west, we think. They, they had not, not the leading presence of God like they did. But God promised in Exodus 33 that I will not take my presence away. But if you'll take a tent outside the camp and pitch it, we're going to call it the tent of meeting where I will meet with you, Moses, Exodus 33 says, he met with God and spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That was the tent of meeting. So the Lord called out to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, and after that you have the book of Leviticus. 
direct dictation from God on how to come near the holy God in holiness, how to worship God in holiness, how to please God in, this should sound familiar, every dimension of life. Now the challenge of Leviticus to many is that it's it's dry and it's just offerings and sacrifices and sacrifices and blood and blood and blood and you're right. But if you know what Moses is doing by recording this for their holiness, then there are some definite translatable principles that come across the Testaments to us. As I said, it's the pastoral epistle of the Old Testament. If you want a simple breakdown, chapters 1 through 17 is about, is, concerns laws and sacrifices related to approaching God in an acceptable way. Those first 17 chapters are all about here's how to come to God with the proper offerings, the proper sacrifice, and as we'll see in a minute with Nadab and Abihu, in the right spirit and in the, with the right heart. And then chapters 18 to 27 concern laws and sacrifices related to continuing fellowship with God. How do you approach God? How do you stay near to God? And if I can just give you a, a pastoral begging plug, if you will read Leviticus with the right eyes, it has such amazing sanctifying grace. Paul told Timothy, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The Torah is good. The instruction is good if one uses it instructionally. Meaning we understand this is to be sanctified, not to be saved. This is how a believer in the Old Testament was to act and respond and sacrifice toward God. So when we read the New Testament, this foundation should sound familiar. This is exactly the way God expects his people to respond in every dimension of life. It's a guidebook for prescribed and detailed worship in the tabernacle or temple and also in daily life. It's the Romans 12, 1 and 2 of the Old Testament. It's our spiritual service of worship that is described and outlined and detailed. Now, it's easy to say if you look at Leviticus or Numbers or some regulations in Deuteronomy as a New Testament believer and say, that has nothing to do with me. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. I should just move past that. Is that true or false? And the answer is complicated. Because no, we don't fulfill all these laws and offerings. We will see in the book of Hebrews why we don't in a moment. We don't have to get all these regulations and the civil and ceremonial parts of our worship down to the nth degree like the, the children of Israel did. However, the principle of God caring in a very detailed sense about every nuance of our life is the principle that translates from this book over into the New Testament believer's life. It is not to be left with dust on it, with the pages stuck together in your, in your Older Testament. It is to be read because you understand how holy God is and you understand the depth and the dimensionality and the extent to which he expects holiness in the lives of his children. Now, let's just deal with one of the biggest problems of Leviticus right away, can we? While I'm doing this, turn over to Leviticus chapter 19. One of the criticisms of Leviticus is that it is too detailed, too persnickety. I want us to start in our little survey room. We're gonna walk around the house in Leviticus and walk out with some principles. 
with probably the most difficult part of the book of Leviticus. So let's just deal with it and, and tackle it head on. Leviticus 19 is, uh, is one of the most detailed parts of the book that has tripped up many uh, an interpreter over the decades, the centuries, and the millennia. Yes, it's a detailed book, but as we used to say growing up in Tennessee, Leviticus is intended to get in your kitchen. It's intended to, to point a finger at every part of life. So here's my question. I want to read you a section. It's, it's a longer section, but it's, it's a little longer on purpose. I want you to listen to this. And as a good expositor, a good Bible interpreter, as a good Bible student, I want you to say, what is the so what to this? What do we do with this? This is in your Bible, okay? Does this apply to you? Let's, let's have a little fun. Leviticus 19, let's start with verse nine. Let's say I gave you a, 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 an assignment and said, okay, I want, you, I want you to have a Bible study. Men, maybe it's a sermon this Saturday and you're gonna preach this, you're gonna teach this. You're gonna have a, a Bible study this Saturday morning with your high school students, with your college students, with your, your care group on this. What would you do with this passage? All right, here we go. It comes very fast. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. By the way, that would come to bear in the book of Ruth. It's gonna be hard for me not to stop and footnote all this. Let me, let me just keep going. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of the, your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. There's the motivation. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So far, so good, right? You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Pay them as due. You shall not curse a deaf man. I like that, being deaf in one ear. Nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. So far, so good. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Wow, there's a sermon there, isn't it? Doesn't that sound like James 2? Don't be partial to the rich. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So far, so good, right? Sounds very New Testament-ish. You are to keep my statutes. You are not to breed together two kinds of cattle. You shall not... So you're filled with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of mixed material. It's getting a little more odd. Now, if a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has in no way been redeemed nor given her freedom, there shall be punishment. They shall not, however, be put to death because she was not free. He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. The priest shall also make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed. And the sin which he has committed will be forgiven him. 
When you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year, you are to eat of its fruit, that its yield may increase for you. I am the Lord your God. Do you see a recurring theme of this, all these commandments being rooted in who God is? You shall not eat anything with blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot, so that the land will not fall to harlotry and the land become full of lewdness. You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. Maybe I read that wrong. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. I read it right. You shall revere your God. I am the Lord. And when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens yourselves in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You're fair. You shall have just balances, just weights, and a just, just ephah, just as a hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Thus you shall observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. Makes you want to take a spiritual breath, doesn't it? That's one chapter. It's not even a whole chapter. And the book just has this staccato rhythm of you shall make sure, remember, do this, don't do that, all the way through. What do we do with laws like this? Is that talking about the modern day tattoo craze? Well, if you say it does, then you have to be committed to not wearing anything that has mixed cotton and mixed polyester. Because it's in the same context. What is going on here? Here's the deal. These laws and some of the persnickety, very specific laws in Genesis through Deuteronomy, but especially here in Leviticus, show the people of Israel a few things, and this is what you have to remember, and this is how we understand the principles here to bring into our lives as New Testament believers. First of all, these are not the takeaways. These are just responding to these laws, okay? God's people are to live lives distinct from their pagan surroundings. So much of what was said here was to ask the Israelites to live, to eat, to dress, to be, be in their world differently than the pagan surroundings. And they were going in, about to go into the land of Canaan where they were gonna be surrounded by Canaanites who lived there. A lot of these, the way they ate, Leviticus 11 has all the dietary laws. The way they ate, the way they dressed, the way they, they um, intermarried, the way that they, they dated and courted, who they, who they took out on a date, if you wanted. 
wanted to, uh, very simple. Who they interacted with, who they had fellowship with, who they had meals with, all of that was designed by God so that the people of God would act, look like, be fundamentally different than their surroundings. Why? So they would not fall into the traps of worldliness. They were to be holy. We also learn here that God cares about everything. If you want to learn a great lesson from Exodus, God cares about everything. There is no distinction between what we call the sacred and the secular. In other words, there's secular stuff, there's, there's stuff that's not biblical, that's not Christian, that's not spiritual. And then there's the spiritual stuff that I think about at church and at care group. No, no, no. It's all the same to God. There is no division between sacred and secular. Everything is to be holy before the Lord. Also, God's holiness applies to, as we said, every dimension of life. Not just being different from the world, but being holy to the Lord. It applies to every dimension of life from the most profound to the most mundane. And as verse 37 says, all obedience is aimed at pleasing him. Thus you shall observe all my statutes and all my ordinance and do them. Why? Because he's God. He's Yahweh the Lord. Details matter to God. If you read the book of Leviticus carefully, you will walk away with the reality that every detail of life is a decision of holiness before the Lord. I was not to embarrass him, but my, my son Mark was writing a paper this week uh, for his class out at Spurgeon College, and it was on uh, Leviticus. And he's been working on it for a couple of weeks. Where are you, Mark? I, I probably should find you. There you are. I'm sorry. I, I learned a lot because for two weeks we were talking about Leviticus. Now, well, Mark is under the impression that his dad like knows everything about the Bible at all times. So he's asking me about verses. And I don't know. What do you think? It was, it was a wonderful exercise. But the more we talked about it, the more it was just so encouraging to both of us as he was pounding through the book of Leviticus. And our conclusion was exactly this. Everything matters to God. Everything. Dressing, eating, rising, sleeping, everything matters to God. We never have a switch where we turn off our Godwardness. With that, turn over to Leviticus chapter 10. What's very interesting about the book is it kind of climbs toward Leviticus 10 and then climbs, descends from Leviticus 10. If you go back to chapter 8, don't do that now, but Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, were ordained as priests. As far as we know, looking at this narrative, chapters 8, 9, and 10, this was their very first day on the job. Now, think about this. These are Aaron's sons. They had been brought up in the book of Exodus near the Lord, up on the mountain. They had seen the phenomenon of Sinai. Look at the end of chapter 9. Aaron lifted up, verse 22, his hands toward the people 
blessed them and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. These were grain and animal sacrifices that he brought and placed on the altar. Moses and Aaron went up into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. That is a fascinating text to me. The kavod, the heaviness, the, the glory of the Lord, this bright, shining light, this overwhelming sense of the gravity and presence of God appeared to all the people. What did they see? We don't know everything, but we do know something. Verse 24. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted, they panicked, and fell on their faces. That's very important that the people of Israel, along with Nadab and Abihu, who are about to start their brand new priestly ministry. They saw it too. The next phrase, erase the chapter division for a moment. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which God had not Commanded them. A fire pan was just a little plate they would hold with a handle, almost like a skillet. They, they would take um, uh, embers or, or, or coals from a fire and place it in a, to another place. They took fire from the wrong place. You say, what it was a strange fire? Where, where did it come from? Here's the point. It doesn't matter. All we need to know is the last phrase of verse one. God had not commanded it. Get this. On their first day on the job as pastor, priest, shepherds, caregivers for the souls of of Israel, on their very first day, on their very first act, with their very first initiation, they decided to go rogue and go outside of what God had prescribed and offer something he hadn't. That was a strange fire. What the fire was is not significant. That it was strange, meaning that it was foreign, that it was not what God commanded them, that was significant. These were celebrities in that day. These were well-respected men. These were, this was Moses' nephews. This was Aaron's sons. And fire, verse two, came out from the Holy of Holies, the presence of the Lord and consumed them. There's a direct reference of play going on here. The fire came out up in uh, verse um, 24 of chapter nine and consumed the sacrifice. Here, it consumed the men. And they died Before the Lord. We find out down in verse five that it incinerated them but didn't even didn't even singe their clothes. This was a unique fire. This was a fire of judgment, which in chapter nine, verse twenty-four had been a fire of pleasure and acceptance. 
God killed these men. God killed these priests in their first act of priestly service. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is his brother, he sees the dead bodies of his nephews. What is he going to say? What, what, what can you say? What would you say? God allows us to eavesdrop. Moses says, it's what the Lord spoke. When did he speak this? What did he mean? What did he say? If you go back to Exodus 19, we find that he said, by those who come near me, that's leaders, that's priests, pastors, I will be treated as holy. And look at the succession here. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. I want to tell you as a pastor and as an elder, I have studied this passage for years. I've preached this passage many times and even to read it again puts chills on my arms. How serious God is about doing, ordering, orchestrating worship to him in a way that is regulated by his word. And how serious he is to go outside, for, uh, how serious he is if we go outside those regulations. Just think of what Aaron would have said to his wife when he goes home that night. Our boys are dead. Why? Aaron, why are our sons dead? Because they did something that God didn't command them in the name of worship. And they went rogue. What a great reminder, both personally and as a church body, that we should make sure our worship is in spirit and in truth and honoring the very words that God gave us to communicate the words that God gave us to be holy and to sanctify ourselves, to take the Lord's table seriously, to take our singing seriously, to take the preaching seriously, to take our fellowship seriously. These, this was intended by God to use these leaders as a living and dying example on how serious he is about his worship. If Leviticus 10 was all we had about God, his expectations and his judgment, it would be a very discouraging book. But that's not all we have. So turn over to Leviticus chapter 16. <clears throat> Leviticus 16. If you're a Bible quizzer or if you know your Bible, if you've ever diagrammed or outlined or memorized things in your Bible, you know when you hear Leviticus 16, you know two words, right? Yom Kippur. I was asking some of the students what Yom Kippur is. I said, there'll be a test later. So here it is, Yom Kippur. Yom is the Hebrew word for day. Kippur is kind of an English way that we, we would translate the word for atonement. Yom Kippur, day of 
Atonement. So every fall, it falls on a different weekend um, every year, but every year, my wife and I live in an Orthodox Jewish community, and whether it's in late October or it can stretch from September to, to November, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur is there. It is, it is the most serious time we see our Jewish friends walking to the synagogue every day and they're, and they're full black with their yarmulkes, with, with their phylacteries. And they're very serious about this. It's the highest holy day on the Jewish calendar. And frankly, for good reason. It's the Day of Atonement. What is the day of atonement. Well, we find out in, in Leviticus 16. Now, I'm tempted to read it all, but for time's sake, I'm not going to. Just know this, that over and over, this shall make atonement, this shall make atonement, this shall make atonement for your sin. There was to be a day where they were to take a goat or a sheep and to sacrifice that, this was not the daily or weekly or monthly sacrifices. This was the once a year sacrifice that was to take away their sin. Look at the commentary on this down in verse, chapter 17, verse 11. Actually, can we just read some of it? I can't resist. Just look at verse 29, then we'll go to 17, 11. Leviticus 16, verse 29. This shall be a permanent statute for you. That's why the Jews to this day celebrate Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. In the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement, covering, shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Look at that. This was the day they celebrated a sacrifice where an animal would die instead of them. It would bleed instead of them. It would offer its life instead of them. It would cover that. The word for atonement is to cover. It would cover their sins. But please don't miss the fact that they had to do it every single year. It was a permanent statute. It just didn't have permanent effects. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent and abiding statute. Verse 32. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you should have this as a permanent statute. He keeps telling us, do this every single year. To make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so he did. Do you see what's going on here? Oh, there were sacrifices for sins throughout the year. But this was the big one. Two significant sacrifices, the two biggest sacrifices in the Jewish calendar were Passover to celebrate their, their exit from Egypt and also the Day of Atonement which celebrated their, their once a year God wiping their slate clean. How did that happen? We get the theological um, uh, explanation in 17 verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls 
for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. There's a lot there. Let me, let me unpack it for you. The blood by reason of the life. Blood by reason of the life means they didn't cut an animal and let it bleed a little bit. It would heal up, scab over and go out and live its life fine. It was blood that, that, that took its life. And in the same way, when we talk about the blood of Christ, we're not talking about the blood that came from the crown of thorns, the blood that came and dripped down from, from the nails in his hands and in his feet. We're not talking about the blood from the, the scourging on his back. When we talk about the blood of Christ, it's this verse that the New Testament has in mind, blood by means of the life. It's death. So the day of atonement, listen, took care of the sins of the people who by faith believed that God was going to atone or cover their sins by this sacrifice. That's the foundation for the substitutionary atonement of the Son of God, the Son of Man, who would die for the sins of those who believe. I think it's important to look at the New Testament commentary on this. We, we can't go very far without reflecting on this. Hebrews chapter seven, you're welcome to turn there or you can just listen. Hebrews seven twenty six. it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Once for all. Uh, if you're in Aaron's uh, Sunday school class, have you gotten to chapter 10 yet? No, the first 12 verses are a commentary on this. Sin is no longer atoned for by the blood of bulls and goats. But the writer tells us there, it was the death of the son of God who John the Baptist said is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by his once for all sacrifice. Last year, my wife and I were on a walk. I've shared this with you before, some of you at least, on Indian Creek Trail. And we, it was a beautiful afternoon. We were walking, having a sweet time. And as we were coming up to one section, the trail uh, uh, was making a curve. And by the curve, another part of the trail was a confluence that came right into that, that road. And so there was a man who was walking there and we were walking together. And we came together at the same time. Hey, how you doing? He said, fine, and it was, it was very obvious that he was Jewish uh, by how he was dressed, and, and uh, you know, um, I said, Boker Tov, you know, good morning. And he looked at me a little odd, like, you're not supposed to know that. And, and uh, so we, we started talking about Judaism. And he was a sharp guy. We were talking about, you know, the, um, uh, the, the Sabbath and, and, and the um, uh, in fact, I think it was a, a Saturday, and, uh, which was interesting because you'll find out later, he probably shouldn't have been talking to a, a Gentile to me that day. We were talking about this, that, and the other and having a great time. And, you know, I love, the, I love the, the, the Torah. You don't say the Old Testament. I love the Torah. I love the writings and love the, the Tanakh. And we were talking about and had a great time. And, and it was obvious that he knew I knew a little bit more than the average 
guy, and I knew he knew more than the average guy too. And so I asked him, uh, what do you do? He says, I'm a rabbi. And then without me saying anything, his, he says, you're a pastor, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yes. Yeah. So Kim and I began to ask him. It was a very fascinating conversation. We said, can we just ask you a question? I've always wanted to ask someone. How is sin paid for in contemporary Judaism? Uh, because the book of Leviticus in chapter 16 and chapter 17 says, sin is only atoned for or covered by blood. He says, oh, that's, that's exactly right. And I said, so do you offer sacrifices knowing that he didn't? And he said, oh no, we don't do that anymore. I said, really, why is that? Here was the answer. God has changed the way he forgives sins and atones for them. God has changed. And so I said, where, where did you find out how he had changed? Well, guess where he found out? In the Jewish writings that are extra biblical. Isn't that convenient? It was a fascinating conversation. We had to turn around. We, he left. We had a wonderful time. And then I realized later that he probably had broken something by talking to us Gentiles in such a religious way on the Sabbath. But it broke, broke our hearts. I remember trying to get into the theological nuances, by the way, and, and Kim was on the right of me and he was on the left. And I'm, I'm trying to you know, warm up and Kim just says, did you know that you could have a forgiveness of all your sins right now if you'll trust the Messiah, Jesus Christ? <laughs> well, there we are. <laughs> Leviticus teaches us God makes a way. Those animals died every year so that they wouldn't, so the people wouldn't have to. Now, here's a theological question that I just want to put out there just for fun, and you can talk about this maybe in your care group. Did those animal sacrifices literally actually forgive their sins? The book of Hebrews says ultimately no, only Christ does, but what did they think? What did they believe? God revealed to them the means of grace. If you do this, I will cover your sins. They did this and they believed that God covered their sins. And I only say that because I heard someone preaching a few years ago that every time that they offered an animal on the day of atonement, they were thinking of the coming Messiah. I don't think so. Isaiah 53 hadn't been written then. And even when it had been, they were really confused. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch about what Isaiah 53 was actually about? I think they simply believed God and took him at his word that if they would do what God called them to do, he would forgive them. They were saved by grace through faith in what God had revealed to them. Back to Leviticus eleven forty five. I'm the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I am the one who saved you. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Therefore be sanctified. Can we just sneak a peek over at 1 Peter chapter 1 for a moment? 1 Peter chapter 1. Was this book called Leviticus something with which Peter was familiar? You think he grew up understanding and learning and loving the book of Leviticus? Look at 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse uh, 13. 
Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Be sanctified, right? But like the Holy One who called you, does this sound familiar? Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because... It is written, now a direct quote from Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. Look at how Peter beautifully melds New Testament sanctification with his Old Testament foundation. Verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves comprehensively in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. In all your behavior, why? Because Leviticus says so. He applies the book of Leviticus to a New Testament believer and says, be holy because God is holy. So how do we go back and, and, and sanctify ourselves by applying all of those Old Testament laws? Jesus gave us the way. Jesus gave us the way. In Matthew 22, this is what he said. All that's in the law and the prophets, all, everything that's in the law and the prophets boils down to two simple commands. Here's your hermeneutic from Jesus to understand all those sundry laws in the book of Leviticus. Ready? Every one of them teaches you something about how to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and or how to love your neighbor as yourself. So you go to a strange law in Leviticus, Leviticus 19, like uh, don't, don't mix threads in your fabric. Why? Well, we know from ancient Near Eastern studies that the, the pagans did that. He's saying dress differently than them. Look differently than them. Well, how does that apply to us? We dress modestly. We dress nicely. We dress uh, um, attractively without trying to attract. There's the foundation for being modest in, in 1 Peter and in 1 Timothy. How we dress matters. When you see all these laws, instead of being tripped up on, well, that doesn't apply, and I don't have a cow, and I'm just say, wait a minute. This is so comprehensive. Listen, so comprehensive. Do you hear the theme? In every dimension of life, everything, everything matters to the Lord. So let me give you three takeaways as we walk out of this, this book, just kind of rumbling around in the book of Exodus for the last little bit. Book of Leviticus, sorry. We did Exodus two weeks ago. Let me give you three quick takeaways. Number one, God cares about every dimension of a believer's life. The Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint. God cares about every dimension of a believer's life. There is nothing in your life over which God does not say, mine, mine, Everything matters, what you watch, where you go, what you say, what you wear, what you eat, what you drink. Everything, everything is regulated by a desire to be holy because God is holy. And when you read and you're over, I'm telling you, just read all of Leviticus 19. You will finish that chapter and just be overwhelmed like, well, I can't move. That's the point. God cares about everything. Number two. A believer's greatest aim is to be holy like God. A believer's greatest aim 
is to be holy like God, to aspire to his moral perfections, to be more kind and good and gentle and godly and Christ-like from the New Testament perspective. Our greatest aim is to be holy like God. That's what Peter says. And the third takeaway that lands us right in the book of Hebrews, right in the New Testament, number three, sin is serious and can only be covered by blood sacrifice or death. Sin is serious and can only be covered, atoned for, forgiven by blood sacrifice, which means death, Leviticus 17, 11 says. Do you think Leviticus is a slow pitch to the gospel? It's all there. He desires holiness. Don't miss the fact that Peter uses Leviticus as the foundation, as a quotation for a New Testament believer to act and respond and to be holy like God. You know, one of the things that we're gonna be noticing as we go through the Old Testament in our, our once, once a sermon flyovers is that two-thirds of your Bible, two-thirds of the word of God that you hold is the Old Testament. It's relevant, it matters, and every one of these texts stand in relation to God's ultimate revelation of his son, the Lord Jesus, who alone will take away the sins of the world by a once-for-all sacrifice. It's one book written by one author with one unifying message that builds to the great and final word, Hebrews 1 says, is Jesus Christ. So would you read the book of Leviticus? For your sanctification, for your holiness. Read it like I did this week and go, wow, God is detailed. Very detailed. He knows about, he cares, he regulates everything from our attitudes to our actions to our worship. Let me pray.